0: This morning, we're going to be beginning a brief two week survey of the book of Psalms. And so, by way of introduction, I'm going to read from Psalm 48. Psalm 48, verses 12 to 14. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, and go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word and for the book of Psalms. Lord, we pray that we might worship you faithfully and know your priorities and purposes as we worship your holy name. And so guide us this morning as we study your word and seek to grasp the structure and form of this important book. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In Psalm 48, we're instructed to survey the city of Zion, to consider her features, her towers, her ramparts, her citadels, to examine and measure and describe God's city, and we're to do this as a means of learning something about God himself. When God gives shape to something, he does that with a purpose. When God gives form to something, he has purposes for us to learn things about himself. The very architecture of the city of Zion was meant to instruct and convey to God's people things about God himself. Similarly, in Ezekiel chapter 43, we read that God says to Ezekiel, as for you son of man, describe to the house of Israel, the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And they shall measure the plan, and if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, and its entrances, that is, its whole design. The shape and arrangement of the very city of Zion, and the shape and structure and features of the temple, they're all meant to instruct us in the ways of Yahweh. And likewise, when we consider the book of Psalms, its, its shape, its structure, its architecture, we're meant to learn things about God himself. In fact, the very word Psalms comes from the Hebrew word tehalim, which it means songs of praise. And so when we examine the parts and the features of this altar, we are going to come away with an understanding about God himself. This book has been architected and arranged to teach us about how we ought to properly worship Yahweh, our God. This book of Psalms, it's not an accidental or random arrangement of 150 songs. And unfortunately, I think we tend to dip our toes into the book of Psalms. We pick out our favorites or maybe just our favorite verses from within some of the Psalms. And when we do this, when when we approach the Psalms this way, we fail to understand the overall structure and architecture of the book. We don't see its walls, its towers, or the width of its gates. And so through this survey in the book of Psalms, I want us to understand how the structural arrangement of the book itself reflects something very important to the worship of God, namely that the worship of God is connected to the historical covenantal progression of God's works of redemption among his people. There's an arrangement here that we're going to see that's going to reflect this, which is also reflected in the worship of God. Worship in its connection to covenantal history is embedded and baked into the Christian faith. It's embedded and baked into the Christian faith. We do not worship a faceless deity. We worship Yahweh, the God who delivered his people out of bondage in the house of Egypt. We we worship that God who led them through the wilderness and into the promised land, who chastised and corrected his people, sending them into captivity, and then, again, restoring them to the, God, to the land. That is the God that we worship, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we see this connection to the history of the covenantal, um, redemptive purposes of God, reflected in this songbook, reflected in our very worship, we understand that there, is a, that there is a pointing, a direction, a trajectory that's leading to the fulfillment of that covenant ultimately in the book for whom and through whom and to whom it was written, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, we're going to take a 30,000 foot overview of the book itself, the entirety of the book itself. We're going to see its borders and its structures. We're going to see the, 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 the landscape from above. And then next week, we're going to zoom down into the terrain and we're going to examine the various features, the kinds of terrain that we see in the book of Psalms. And so, with respect to the structure of the book of Psalms, the first thing, of course, that we want to recognize is that it's not just one book. It's a book of five books. There are five books of the book of Psalms. And as you read through the book of Psalms, you'll see that there are little notes saying book one, book two, book three, book four. Book book one is Psalms one through forty-one. Book 2 is Psalms 42 to 72. Book 3 is 73 to 89. 4, 90 to 106. And 5, 107 to the end. And it's not just these kind of marginal notes that reflect this five-book structure. We also see at the very end of each book, there's this refrain. There's this coda. There's this pronounced punctuation point of, of praise that divides the seams of these books. So, for example, at the end of Psalm 41, We read, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And then at the end of Psalm 72, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And then at the end of Psalm 89, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And at the end of 106, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And then the last refrain of the entire book of Psalms, let everything that has breath, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. These are are high notes, punctuation points, markers dividing the five-book structure of the book of Psalms. So when we think of the fact that it's arranged in five books, that structure ought to be recalling something about the other five-book structure that we have in our Bible, right? The, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, which are often just called the law in the Bible. So we think of the law, the five-book structure of, of the Pentateuch, and here we have our five books of worship arranged in that same five-book structure, and we immediately have a connection, don't we? We see that, that the, the, the law, when properly understood, the law... When properly followed, always leads and is mirrored by praise and worship. We do not understand God's law rightly. We do not practice God's law rightly until it results in praise and delight and worship. And so, isn't it fitting that the very first Psalm, the very first book in the book of Psalms, begins this way Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And likewise, of course, we think of Psalm 119, which we'll talk about a little bit later, the, the longest chapter uh, in, the, in the Bible, how it's structured, um, and, it's, and it reflects that delight in God's law. The law, the arrangement of the law in five books in the five book, structure of Psalms is meant to connect the right use of God's law, the right understanding of God's law, to the praise and glory of God. But there's more to consider in each book. And so what we want to see in these five books, where we're going to go is we're going to see that the very arrangement and structure, the sequencing of these books also follows the progression of God's covenantal working in history. That's what we're going to map out. And as we map that out, we're going to do it in kind of two different chunks. We're going to look at books 1 and 2 together, and then we're going to look at books 3, 4, and 5. And that's because books 1 and 2 structurally are arranged as a little subgroup within the Bible. If, you've, if you turn to the end of Psalm 72, you'll see that it concludes, "...the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended." It's kind of an odd thing to have at Psalm 72 because if you continue reading in this altar you find more Psalms of David later. Uh, This this indicates that the first two books were likely arranged or compiled or or had a structure during the time of David or shortly thereafter and were kind of considered a proto-book of Psalms and it wasn't until later more of redemptive history taking place where more Psalms had been written in the context of God's people that they were added and then the entirety of the book of Psalms was arranged and structured and brought together as a whole. Now I do want to note one thing, just so that you're not confused, Um, when I'm I'm indicating that these five books are arranged uh, to reflect a sequence of redemptive history, I'm not suggesting that the actual Psalms themselves follow that, that's why you find Psalms of David at the end as well as at the beginning, but rather the way that the book was organized and structured and the content and the aspects of the psalms and where they're arranged does reflect this order. So don't, don't be confused about, about that, because what we're going to do in seeing this pattern, is ex- examine two details from the book to see this progression. Number one, the authorship of the psalms. We're going to take note of who wrote them um, and the frequency of those authors. And then, of course, the content of the psalms themselves. And so let's take a look at, at book one and two sort of as a unit and consider first the authorship of these psalms, When you read the first book of Psalms, with the exception of Psalm 1 and 2, which are anonymous, they're not labeled, probably because those were meant perhaps as an overall introduction to the first two books or maybe of the whole of the book of Psalms, aside from Psalms 1 and 2, all of the first book are Psalms of David, every one of them. But when you come to book two, you find that only about half of those are written by David and the rest are by the sons of Korah and by Asaph. So it's sort of half and half. And I want us to take note of of these kinds of authorship patterns. The fact that the first book is entirely David, the second book half David and half others, and then we're going to see other uh, aspects of frequency to Davidic Psalms, we're going to see a pattern, and the very arrangement of the frequency of authors is going to be pointing us to something about God's purposes in and through redemptive history. So the first piece of data on the first two books, all of book one by David, and the second only half. But it's not just the authorship details, it's also the content itself. When you read through the Psalms in Book 1, you will find that the tone, the content, the context seems to reflect a stable kingdom. A sound and stable kingdom under King David who had defeated his enemies and gave them peace on every border and that this was the context. Now that doesn't mean that you're not going to find enemies and adversaries and laments in the first book of Psalms. You will in fact, Psalm 3, right out of the gate, David says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. And then the very next one, uh, in Psalm 4, there are many who say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your power upon us, O Lord. So there are definitely enemies and laments and cries in the first book, but when you look at it carefully, they tend to be personal adversaries of David related to struggles and trials in his personal life. Not so much that there are hostile armies on the border about to encroach. So there's a difference of context. But then, as you move to book two, things start to erode. Not only do you have these laments and and personal issues that might be reflected, but you actually see hostility from the outside disrupting the security and stability of God's people. So Psalm 44, for example, we read in verse 9, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and we have, are, we have, and, are, and scattered us among the nations. So when we consider these two kind of data points, the authorship as well as the content, we look at this contrast between book one and two and we have book one, all of David reflecting a stable and secure kingdom. Uh, Then we move to book two and we find it's divided. It's half and half, half David, half others, and that there are enemies and they're actually beginning to encroach. And so the structure of these two, the arrangement seems to suggest that the first book reflects the early kingdom of David, a high point, and then book two is, is either reflecting the divided kingdom or leaning toward the divided kingdom, the seeds of the divided kingdom, are there, and we begin to see fracture. We begin to see instability. I want to look at one other detail that I just find fascinating um, that reflects this difference and underscores something about what happened in the progression from the stable kingdom under David and then the divided kingdom. I want to look and compare and contrast Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Have you ever noticed that we have a repeat psalm in our Psalter? Have you ever wondered why it's there twice? Psalm 14 is the psalm that begins, the fool says in his heart there is no God and it's a warning about unbelief and not trusting in Yahweh. Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Same, almost same. There are some differences. There are some slight differences toward the end, but by and large, these are exactly the same psalm except for one very important detail. Psalm 14, verse 2, Yahweh looks down from heaven. Verse 4, And they do not call upon Yahweh Verse 7, when Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people, Psalm 53, verse 2, God, Elohim in in Hebrew, looks down from heaven, the generic use of the word God. They do not call upon God, Elohim. Verse 6, when Elohim, God, restores the fortunes of his people, the name, the covenant name Yahweh is removed from Psalm 53. Why might that be the case? And how might that reflect the fact that in the book 2 is supposed to follow this notion of a divided or threatened kingdom. Well, of course, we know that the northern kingdom, when that split occurred, was a tremendously idolatrous, rebellious, and unbelieving northern tribe. In fact, if you look at the book of Hosea, Hosea was a pre-exilic prophet. He was prophesying against the northern kingdom before the captivity into Babylon He says in his opening chapter, verse eight, when she has weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. That is a profound curse and warning and reflection of the unbelief of the northern tribes, their fall into idolatry and rebellion, the consequence for them was no more Yahweh. I will not be Yahweh, I will not be I am to you. Douglas Stewart, in his commentary on Hosea, he writes, Hosea is reminded in these familial terms of the fact that for Israel, disillusion of their personal relationship with God is the necessary result of rebellion. Obedience led to kinship, disobedience must lead to being disowned, divorced. Thus the message name, not my people, and the divine explanation in the rest of the verse are unmistakable in their assertion that the covenant is now broken, since Israel's very identity was that of a covenant people that are now formally cut adrift. Because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry, because of their unbelief, they were no longer permitted to be called by the covenant name of God. And so this reflection of the removal of the name in the second book is indicating this dramatic change of posture of God toward his people who were in rebellion. And so he removes his covenant name. And I want us to reflect on this for ourselves. It is a mark of blessing that we can use the covenant name of God. I appreciate it so much when when Pastor Dwayne is preaching and he comes across the word Lord in uppercase and he just substitutes Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Because we worship Yahweh. We worship a triune God. We don't worship a faceless deity. The removal of the use of the name Yahweh is a mark of unbelief. I get concerned when I visit other churches or I hear... Um, pastors and preachers, and you hear a whole sermon and you never hear Yahweh or Trinity or Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You just hear God, 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 God. Might that reflect something of God's posture toward the church when we don't use his covenant name? Using the covenant name of God in our liturgy, in our worship, it's not only a mark of blessing, it preserves us. It causes us to remember who this God is. Not nameless, faceless deity, Yahweh who brought his people out of Egypt. That God, that's who we are worshiping, the triune God. That is who we are worshiping. So, books one and two, um, we see the beginning of a pattern of united kingdom, divided kingdom, and then we come to books three, four, and five. Book three, beginning with Psalm 73, is a bit of a transitional psalm as it moves through Psalm 89. If we see in book two the beginnings of threatenings of armies, the beginnings of instability, book three reflects that we are way far gone. And looking at the authorship of book three, that we're going to find that there is only one, just one Psalm of David in book three. The rest are by Asaph and some by the sons of Korah, the last two by Heman and Ethan. And if we just reflect on the authorship details, we can... It's... It's reflecting the notion that that stable kingdom, that secure kingdom, that's long gone. That's in the distant past. Then, when we come to the content of book three, that speaks even louder than the authorship details. So, uh, book three begins with Psalm, uh, in Psalm 70, well, Psalm 72, but the next one, Psalm 73. The author says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here they are, northern tribes, idolaters, and they're seeing the wicked, they're prospering. That's not supposed to happen. What is that indicating? Then in Psalm 74, it's it's even more explicit. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old. Which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. For your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. Or Psalm 77, verse 4. You hold my eyelids open, so, and I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search." Will you, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises as at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Things in book three are not going well for God's people. They had rushed into idolatry, into rebellion and unbelief, and God now is sending the enemy straight into the 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 nation. Straight into the temple. Breaking down those trees represents the, the trees that are symbolized in the temple. They're just hatcheting them from inside the temple. What is going on? Why are we being overrun? Well, of course, it's because of their unbelief and their idolatry. But there's something else that we find in the content of book three that's very important for us to remember. Whenever we find ourselves living among a generation of unfaithfulness like they were in the northern tribes, there always will be a remnant. There always will be faithful people in those contexts. They suffer the same consequences. They have to endure the enemies coming. They have the same cries out to God for relief from enemies. But what, how, do the, how do the faithful act? What are they to do when all around them is faithlessness and judgment coming right in? Well, as we saw in Psalm 77, It says in verse 6, Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Down in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. When faithlessness is running rampant, the faithful, they remember. What do they remember? They remember who this God is and what he has done in history. They remember the law. They remember remember the, the, the liturgy. They remember their worship. They remember the covenant name. They don't forget it. That's why I appreciate the structure of our liturgy designed to help us remember that we have a five-fold liturgy, just like we have a five-fold Pentateuch and a five-fold book of Psalms. We have the call to prayer. We have the confession of sins. We have the consecration before the word, the communion, and a commissioning. We have a structure and an order, and it's designed using the name of our covenant God, designed to keep and preserve our faithful worship, even as a faithless generation is heading, headlong into judgment. The liturgy that we see in the book of Psalms, the very shape and structure and architecture of it, it's meant to inform us that we too would maintain a structure, an organization, that will preserve and keep our worship and keep us worshiping faithfully. That brings us to book 4, which is the shortest of the five books, Psalms 90 to 106. And if we are following the trajectory here, and we have book 1 reflecting the stable kingdom under David, book 2, it's becoming unstable, it's reflecting uh, the the coming apart, and book 3, it is divided formally, it is is radically idolatrous, and it is suffering um, conquest by its enemies. Well, that would in, in, indicate that perhaps Book 4 will find ourselves actually in captivity. And I believe that very much is reflected both in the authorship and the content of Book 4. Book 4 begins with the, book, the Psalm of Moses. begins with the Psalm of Moses. I think that's an important detail in authorship. There are a couple of Psalms of David toward the end. Maybe some hope is in this picture. All the rest, anonymous. All the rest, no indication of authorship. Reflecting, perhaps, the fact that God's people in captivity, away from the land, the covenant God re- re- removing his name because they are covenant breakers, and now they live in anonymity, in captivity. The content, likewise, very much reflects the, um, the context of, of captivity. Which, when we find the book of Moses, uh, the Psalm of Moses, right at the beginning, implies that they are in captivity and they're waiting, they are longing for an exodus, right? An exodus back out from Babylon into, uh, back to the promised land. And so we find in Psalm 90, the very, uh, the very first Psalm in, in book 4, verse 12, it says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen evil so they're reflecting on the fact that they've been in affliction for a number of years and they're saying restore us according to those years psalm 94 verse 2 rise up o judge of the earth repay the proud what they deserve o lord how long shall the wicked how long shall the wicked exalt They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Additionally, we find in Book 4 repeated allusions and references to the Exodus. Not only having the Psalm of Moses be the first psalm in the book, but Psalm 95, Psalm 99, Psalm 104, and Psalm 105 all contain Exodus references. Clearly, this is a people in exile longing and waiting for their own exodus out of Babylon and back into the promised land. And then we find the last psalm in the book, Psalm 106. What a capstone. It's a recounting of the historical sins of God's people, about what God has done, what God did, and how we responded, what God did, and how we turned away and grumbled, what God did, and how we were not believing and trusting in him. Getting to the end of Psalm 106, then, picking up in verse 40, it says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So we see that there is this structuring, this ordering, this arranging, this architecting of the book of Psalms to reflect the historical, redemptive, covenantal purposes of, of God. That We see now they are in captivity. And while in captivity, reflecting in that context, the kind of Psalms we find there, we see some very interesting notes about what God did and accomplished through them while in that condition of captivity. You see, at this lowest point, in Israel's history, where they find themselves in captivity for their own godless idolatry, something quite remarkable happens. We see something about the nature of their praise, which is refined through the process of God's chastisement and discipline. Having been dislodged, they're no longer in the land, they can't worship at the temple. They're over here, but they still want to worship their God. And so where do they have to turn? What do they have to understand about the worship of God when they're not in the place where they're supposed to be worshiping God? Well, we find refrains like this in, verse, in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 91, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Additionally, Psalms 93, Psalms 95 through 100, these are profoundly worshipful Psalms. Very God-centered, worshipful Psalms. And then we find, uh, in the midst of all of these, Psalm 94, which very much identifies and puts its finger on what's going on in this this, uh, correction, this discipline that they find themselves in, in Babylon. Psalm 94, verse 12, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble. They recognized clearly, we are being disciplined. We are being chastened. We sinned. And now we are recognizing that it is the Lord who is our dwelling place. And, in Psalm, and then in Psalm 94, verse 22, But the Lord has become my stronghold and the rock of my refuge. They learn in captivity. And it, it's, it's, um, it's interesting to note that once they return back into the land, that the high-handed idolatry of his people ended not that there wasn't other kinds of idolatry going on after that but but that very formal high-handed idolatry God rid them of that practice through this painful and corrective discipline we see the structure of the book itself its arrangement its architecture its order it's reflecting this progression what is God doing in and through his people to to, to bring about his covenantal purposes and his redemptive plan We had a stable kingdom under David, a a fracturing kingdom, and then a divided and attacked kingdom, and then a kingdom in captivity. So book five, therefore, must be what? A return back into the land. And this is what we see in book five. Um, And as we do kind of this quick survey of book five, looking at its various aspects, we'll note that uh, not only is this idea of return to the land very much in evidence, but there's a lot of interesting things about book five. We have a, little, a lot of subsets. Of course, we have Psalm 119, which itself kind of stands alone as almost a little mini Psalter to itself. Um, that long acrostic psalm uh, with each of the Hebrew letters of the alphabet forming its structure. And then in each of those, the, the Hebrew letter that corresponds is the first letter in each of those verses. A very well-structured psalm, delighting in God's law. We have Psalms 113 through 118, which are known as the Hillel Psalms, which are often um, used during Passover, we have that unit um, of Psalms 120 through 134 that, we, that are called the Psalms of Ascent, which were traditionally uh, sung as they would pil- make pilgrimage up to Jerusalem or as they would ascend up into the temple to make their sacrifices. We also find at the very end, or right before the end, a new collection of Davidic Psalms. And then the finale, the high point, the last five hallelujah psalms, where the, where the pinnacle of praise is just raised to a high pitch. All throughout book five, however, we find a certain tone, a certain, um, a, a certain point of reference, which is that of Thanksgiving. That of Thanksgiving. Next week, when we kind of zoom in, we're going to examine the different kinds of psalms, one of which is the psalm of Thanksgiving. And if you catalog the occurrences of these kinds of psalms, you'll find that in book five, you have just as many psalms of Thanksgiving as you find in all of the other four books. Lots of thanksgiving, lots of praise. But, however, interestingly, we still also find laments in book 5. We also find some, some cries. And that's because when, they, when the God's people returned into the land, it didn't happen all at once. It wasn't like, you know, the 70 years ticked down and then the entire nation of Israel paraded out of Babylon. It came in, in waves, and stages. So when you read Haggai and, and Zechariah, we learn about the early Um, the early return of some of the exiles. And then we read about Ezra, who there's another kind of wave of exiles that came back into the land. And then we read about Nehemiah, who came later with another wave of exiles. And so even as there's this return, and over here they're rebuilding the temple, and everything is going to be restored, and there's thanksgiving and praise, you still have some back in Babylon. And so we have Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung our lyres, For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So even as this return is happening, it wasn't complete. It wasn't finished. There were still troubles. In fact, even when those who did return, they were attacked and assailed, right? There were adversaries who tried to get them to stop building the temple. There were those uh, enemies who they had to contend with. And what this is pointing at is while the return represents a a, a massively important uh, uh, completion of the Old Testament covenant, the the restoration to the land, that that wasn't the end. There was yet more that God had to accomplish in redemptive history. And so if we think about the authorship of the entire book of Psalms, let's just think about the Davidic authorship. David wrote at least half of all of the Psalms. The first book, as we said, all of David. The second book, it's half and half. They're losing things. There's instability. Book three, where it's really bad, just one. A bare remembrance of David. Book four, in captivity, he's gone. It, they're, they're anonymous, except right at the end, there's that hint of hope. And then we get back to book five. The hope is being restored. They're back in the land. God has refined his people. This promise to, the, to, to David, or ultimately to the son of David, is reemerging, which is why at the very end of the Psalter, right before the finale, we have the, a new book of David, of Davidic Psalms. It, it's happening. We're back. The promises to David, they are going to become fulfilled, except that they weren't. It wasn't. A completion. The temple itself wasn't as good as the one before. There was that sense of this isn't it, is it? And it wasn't. It would be, it would be 400 years later when the one for whom and about whom the entire Psalter is, is foretelling and, and foreshadowing would come. See, David does represent the kingdom, but it's David's son that the promise was ultimately made to, that David would have a son who would sit at God's right hand forever, who would reign and rule eternally over his enemies. And so the entire trajectory of Psalms is bringing us through David as an author to this point where it begins well, it starts to drop, it utterly drops, then it rises to this hope, but it's not finished. There's a trajectory here that points ultimately to that final son of David, which would wait another few hundred years until the right time when God sends his angel to Mary and tells her that the son that she would bear would be great and he would be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God would give him the throne of his father, David. It's this Jesus, the Son of David, who would come to bring that final completion of God's redemptive covenantal Jesus would be born into the world. He would live that perfect life in obedience to God's law. Blessed is that man who walks according to the love of the Lord. And then in our place, substituting for our sins, he dies on the cross. Then in victory, he rises from the dead. And then also in the Gospel of Luke, after he rises from the dead and and he's walking along the road and there's, there's two disciples going to Emmaus and he begins to teach them. And he gets to teach him what? He teaches them everything about the law and the prophets and the Psalms. What do these things say about him? They were all written about him. He was the marker. Jesus was the marker. He was the one that brought a finality and completion to God's redemptive purposes and covenant history. That's the arc, that's the trajectory that the book of Psalms indicates to us about the son of David, about. Jesus our Lord. And so as we study these things, as we examine the the, the structures, the towers, as we get out our measuring tape and, and measure those gates and, and we examine and look at this carefully, we begin to see features that teach us important things about what God is up to in redemptive history and how our faith and what Jesus did is tied to the acts of Yahweh in history on our behalf. We do not worship a nameless, faceless deity. We worship Yahweh. We worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Next week, we're going we're gonna to kind of take, come from way up here, go zooming in, and we're going to actually look at the terrain. We'll examine the various kinds of Psalms that we find. And again, these will help us to be enriched in our understanding and use of the book of Psalms, which continues to preserve and keep our own worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing to us such grandeur and planning and architecture within your word, and particularly in the book of Psalms. As we reflect on how you use songs of worship to remind us of of what you have done throughout history, let us, O Lord, not lose the plot line of how critical it is for us to worship you faithfully. And so, Preserve the purity of our worship of your holy name. And it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.